O God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It shows us where we stand and where you beckon us to go. By your grace, open our ears to hear what you say to us today, that in hearing we may receive, and that in receiving we may be blessed and built for the living of these days. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our scripture reading today comes from the Gospel according to John, chapter 17, verses 1 through 11. Listen for what the Spirit is saying to the church today. After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all people to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. So now, Father, glorify me in your presence, with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. I have made your name known to those whom you gave me from the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you, for the words that you gave to me I have given to them, and they have received them, and know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am asking on their behalf. I am not asking on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those whom you gave me, because they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, Protect them in your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In my experience, reading from the gospel according to John tends to elicit one of two reactions with very little in between. You either relish its richness, allowing the language to gently wash over you, as sacred poetry or good liturgy might, or you feel that you have taken a drink from a fire hose, unsure where or how to begin unpacking what sounds like something terribly important. In this Eastertide season, we have been making our way through John's gospel, often going backwards from the passion and resurrection events in order to go forwards as a newly enlightened and empowered community of faith. In contrast to the other three gospel narratives, the gospel according to John includes a pretty thick interpretive layer. 
Jesus says things in this gospel that he doesn't say in the others. He recites these long monologues, including the prayer that we just read, where he makes a lot of big claims about himself. I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. I am the true vine, and you are the branches. This rather verbose Jesus is a reflection of the early Christian community and their thoughtful, prayerful work in discerning just who he was in light of the resurrection truth. And when you sift through the language in this passage, what's laid bare is that final verse where Jesus addresses God the Father by name again, as if to say, okay, pay attention. This is what all of that meant. He says, protect them, Holy Father, so that they may be one as we are one. It's not only the big so what to the prayer, but because the disciples overheard that prayer and it served as their final instructions, it is the big so what to the claims that Jesus makes about himself in this gospel. So what? What's the point of Jesus being more than a prophet from Nazareth? What's the point of him being the Christ? That they may be one as we are one. Throughout John's gospel, the case for the divinity of Jesus is made. Right out of the gate, in the prologue, John identifies Jesus of Nazareth as the word who was in the beginning, the word who was both with God and the word that was God. New Testament scholar David Bartlett translates it this way. The word was pressed right up against God, and the word was God's own self. The two phrases hold together the tension between claiming that the word was so close to God that you could not see any space in between them, and the claim that the word actually was God. It's the claim that Christianity hangs its hat on. Jesus of Nazareth may have been time-bound, a human walking this earth as other humans do, but he was also God incarnate, God's eternal word in flesh and in bone. In Richard Rohr's most recent book, The Universal Christ, he mentions Christianity's transition in the fourth century from a fairly decentralized followers of the way to the official religion of the Roman Empire. Proving the divinity of Jesus became paramount in that transition, and the gospel according to John, along with the epistles, were carefully parsed. What they discovered was a revelation of the divinity of Jesus, a oneness with God the Father, God the Creator. But because the motive was deceitful and self-serving, according to Rohr, 
such oneness largely remained distant academic theory because we did not draw out the practical and wonderful implications of such a thing. As a rule, we were more interested in the superiority of our own tribe, group, or nation than we were in the wholeness of creation. The irony of establishing the divinity of Jesus in creed and confession as a way to consolidate excessive power is that the oneness with God the Father had nothing to do with the love of power and everything to do with the power of love. God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as three distinct beings in a perfectly unified person, is God as relationship itself. When scripture tells us that God is love, it can make that radical claim because of the perfect oneness that exists between the three persons. The wonderful and practical implications for us couldn't be clearer. As people made in God's image, our calling and our destiny is to reflect that unified oneness that exists between the three persons in our world. As they are community, bearing with one another in love, so are we called to be. Holy Father, protect them that they may be one as we are one. I grew up in a public school system that was especially diverse, both racially and socioeconomically. And it is an experience that I often draw from when considering the wonderful and the practical implications of the oneness of our God and the power therein. Roughly 60% of the students I attended school with were people of color, and the majority of them lived below the poverty line, some well below it. Roughly 40% of the students looked like me, and the majority of us lived above the poverty line. Kalamazoo Public Schools had created a pretty robust busing system in the 1970s, and the makeup of the student bodies across the district reflected it. Students who lived in extreme poverty weren't concentrated in any one school, and students with more privilege weren't concentrated in any one school. I can remember the thinly veiled questions at extended family gatherings where my parents' responsibility to my education was challenged, and I was called on to defend their decision to keep me in that school system. I also remember the naivete of some who supposed that we had created in Kalamazoo some kind of utopia that would cure all of society's ills. I remember that in those early years, when we students were very young, we were pretty much one student body. We ate interspersed in the cafeteria. We chose each other as partners for projects in the classroom. 
we had each other over for playdates. Something happened near the end of elementary school, though, and it was so seamless that I still cannot quite put my finger on it. We began mingling only with people who looked with, like us on the playground. An invisible and not-so-invisible line appeared down the middle of the cafeteria, and there almost completely ceased to be any playdates in neighborhoods that were not our own. It was as if over one summer vacation, when some of us were at fancy summer camps and others were not, we came to understand ourselves as different. And not only different, but inhabiting very different worlds. Looking back, we were pretty perceptive 11-year-olds, though we didn't realize it at the time. We did inhabit different worlds. We may have attended the same school in the daytime, but by and large, we went home at the end of the day to two vastly different environments where access to capital and food and utilities and guardians and the assurance of a roof over our heads was night and day. It was a segregation that continued and became more rigid through middle and senior high. And I sometimes wonder if the challenges of adolescence with the intensity of focus on fitting in and claiming an identity by defining self over and against others only help to intensify the labeling and the dividing that we created in our school. And I wonder if perhaps the whole world is in a prolonged state of adolescence. A blessing surfaced in those final years, though. In some spaces, usually on the sports field or in the art studio, or in my case, in the choir room, some of that separation began to soften around the edges. And people that I'd played double dutch with in second grade slowly became friends again as we bonded over a common passion, whether it was music or painting or all of those sports balls. In those spaces, diversity became less threatening and began to be counted as a gift. Intimacy breeded trust and labels became people. This is not, of course, a perfect illustration of the unity that exists in the Godhead or even close to it. The disparity that followed us even into our kindergarten classrooms would follow us out of our 12th grade ones. And where there is disparity, true intimacy rarely follows. But my classmates and I were given glimpses of a restored creation. Fleeting, maybe, but something that we could actually name and carry with us into lives that would have much less diversity in them than the ones that we grew up with. The life that God calls us to live is one that is modeled by God's very being. It's one thing to be given a list of imperatives to love and to serve each other no matter our differences, but it is quite another when the one giving those commands 
perfectly embodies them. There is no do as I say, but not as I do with our heavenly parent. We were created by a God who is perfect love itself, a perfect unity or oneness that is found in difference. We are asked to do only what our God does. We are asked to be only what our God already is. There's another implication for us in all of this talk of oneness, and it was brought home for me several days ago in an exchange with Scott and Cindy Moore, just days before Scott died. Conversation had turned to the coronavirus, and I asked him if he had any thoughts about living his final days in the midst of a pandemic. How do you navigate the tension between collective grief and your own unique grief? I admittedly expected more tension. But where we landed was a place of comfort. The deaths of so many people was not comforting, of course. But the clarity that we are all caught up in the gift and the burden of mortality was. There was comfort in the reality that we do not die alone, that we are always accompanied. And I think his intuition in those final days was profound. And Richard Rohr agrees. He reminds his readers that the very existence of Christ communicates at the deepest intuitive level that there is only one life, one death, and one suffering on this earth. We are all invited to ride that one wave together, which is the only wave that there is. Call it reality, if you wish, but we are all in this together. The freeing Good news of the gospel is that God is saving and redeeming the whole, first and foremost. And we are all caught up in this cosmic sweep of divine love. As God is three in one, and as we are called to be one in all of our diversity, God becomes one with us. Living, suffering, dying with us as we do, and then raising us to new life. In this final prayer, Jesus prayed that we would know this God, that we would know the God who sets that pattern for us and with us, the God who is perfect love itself, and in knowing that we might trust it and reflect it, becoming truly one with God and with one another. May it be so. Amen.